Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. You know, there's something about the Porsche way of doing things that just speaks to me. Take the all-new Porsche Panamera, for example. It's not just another sedan. It's a bold choice for those who aren't afraid to go against the flow, both with the car they choose to drive or the way they live their life. The Panamera redefines sports cars, comfortably seating four and proving that you don't have to sacrifice luxury for performance. Build your dream Panamera online right now at configurator.porsche.com and choose boldly. In the archives of UCLA's library, there is a remarkable seven-hour interview conducted in 1988 with a woman named Helen Sloat-Levitt. Along with a separate interview with Helen's husband, Al Levitt. Each conversation spanning an extraordinary period. The Great Depression, the Second World War, the Cold War, the Civil Rights Movement. What I'd like you to start with is your biographical background, when and where you were born, your parents, your family, etc. Fine. My roots are solidly middle-class Jewish, Brooklyn, uh, out of Poland. The interviews were conducted by the historian Larry Sipler over the course of many months. He remembers the Levitts well, particularly Helen, petite, intense, alive, but in some sense, wounded. It was an interesting interview because when I first approached them, they said no. Uh, You know, they were justifiably, I think, wary of people coming to ask them questions, the answers to which they'd refused to give give to other people. So I made a deal with them. I said I'd send them five questions through the mail, and, and then they could look them over, and if they thought those were legitimate, we could talk on the phone, and they would answer them, which they did. And they came to trust me, you know, that I was, wasn't someone who was, you know, going to um, betray them in any way. The Levitts had their reasons for not trusting outsiders, as you will hear. They are, you know, you know the Yiddish term starker? It means um, strong, you know, kind of tough. You don't let things bowl you over. They were starkers. Helen probably even a little bit more than Al, I think. Larry Sipler's conversation with Helen Levitt is a masterclass in interviewing technique. Careful, persistent, unflinching, 
always with the sense that there is something he's trying to uncover. I interview people for a living as well, but I could not have sat so patiently with Helen Levitt for that long. My name is Malcolm Gladwell. You're listening to Revisionist History, my podcast about things overlooked and misunderstood. In this episode, I want to do something simple. Play you selections from Helen Levitt's interview. I want you to listen to her story in her words and hear, as I did, about a crucial decision she and her husband made when they were young. At the end, I want you to judge her and decide whether she deserved her fate. Since we seem to be doing a fair amount of this these days, judging people for the things they say and believe, I thought it would be a useful exercise. Helen grew up in the Crown Heights neighborhood of Brooklyn, in a house on the corner of Carroll Street and Kingston Avenue. My paternal grandfather went to a parochial high school and then to med school and became a doctor, as did my father. Helen was a precocious child, alert, intelligent. She remembers as a kid reading a charity appeal in the New York Times, New York's 100 Neediest Cases. They gave in each day or each week actual cases of poor, suffering people. And I never missed reading every one of those cases. And I agonized as I read them. Once she went to a birthday party for a wealthy friend of hers, held at the Brooklyn Hebrew Orphan Asylum. So here all we little rich kids went to this terrible, dreary, Dickens-like place. And the show was put on, and all the little orphans were brought in. They could watch the show. And then all the little orphans were led away down these dark halls. And there was a horror to it that uh, never left me. She was a child of the 1930s, when the grand experiment that was America suddenly turned bleak. Did the Depression have much of an impact on your family? Oh, yeah. My father was just, just devastated. His medical practice suffered. Patients stopped paying. His investments were wiped out. Till the um, prohibition was over, I know he was selling liquor prescriptions to the druggist across the street. Was your father a political person at all? Yes, he was what you'd call a parlor pink. He and his friend Harry Silver would fight the revolution in our living room. They would have these violent political discussions and the women would sit there so disgusted because these two guys couldn't make a decent living. And here they were talking about changing the world. But I realized fairly recently in looking back that those two guys were doing that for my benefit because they knew that there was one person in that room who was listening, and that was me. Helen listened. As a teenager, she was a junior counselor at her summer camp. And my new friend, Ines, came to camp. She was beautiful, and she got these incredible love letters from her radical boyfriend in New York that she would let me read that were just so romantic and political. She took me to, in, to meet him. 
on a night that he was making a speech from a soapbox in Manhattan. That was where I was exposed to the young communists. The Young Communist League, the YCL, the youth branch of the American Communist Party. Nobody recruited Helen. She just walked up and volunteered. In the 30s, the Young Communist League of America had thousands of members. The YCL branch in New York was a world unto itself, filled with ideas and passion. There were people going hungry all over the United States, an ongoing moral catastrophe in the American South, a vicious war in Spain against fascism, not to mention Hitler's rise in Germany. Americans were looking for answers, and many found them in the world's biggest communist empire, the Soviet Union. I found it unbear- unfairness of life unbearable and assumed that, God, if it were fixable, how wonderful. And the fact that there was a country, the Soviet Union, which was really trying to fix it, seemed quite marvelous to me. For the first time, as I stepped on Soviet soil, I felt myself a full human being. A full human being. The black American actor and singer Paul Robeson, then at the height of his fame, made a pilgrimage to the Mecca of communism and said, for the first time in my life, I walk in full human dignity. The people who were doing things, really out there fighting the good fight with the, uh, with the young communists. Helen was now attending Brooklyn College, volunteering in a rat-infested building for the YCL, making sandwiches that the branch could sell to pay the rent. After I would get out of the kitchen, the rats would take over and I could see them. Helen met Al Levitt at summer camp. He was from the Bronx. He wanted to be a writer. He followed her into the YCL. They got married and moved to Los Angeles, had two kids, lived up in the Hollywood Hills. Al wrote for the movies and television, social parables like the 1948 Technicolor film, The Boy with the Green Hair. Everywhere you go, people will say... They will say, there is the boy with the green hair. And then people will ask, why does he have green hair? So you will tell them, because I am a war orphan, and my green hair is to remind you that war is very bad for children. You must tell all the people. Helen helped found a non-profit theater in Hollywood, volunteered, ran things. My whole life has been that way. It's always been somebody asked me to do something. You know, I did it. And I always did much more than was asked of me. That was the story of my life. While I was listening to Helen Levitt's story of how she came to join the Communist Party, I couldn't help but think of myself at 18, the age that she was when she entered the movement. i just started college. It was the early 80s. I had a poster of Ronald Reagan on my wall. If you asked me what I was back then, I would have said I was an anti-communist. That was my cause. The Soviet Union had just invaded Afghanistan. The Afghan defenders and the Russian attackers fought bitterly for almost four hours. And according to the Afghan source, casualties on both sides were heavy. It was holding much of Eastern Europe hostage. Poland, now under martial law, is sealed off from the outside world. Britain, America, and other Western nations are watching closely. The Soviet Union apparently wasn't involved, but from the background, they approved. The summer after my sophomore year, I did a journalism internship in Washington, D.C., 
where we were required to do a research project. Mine was on how many people had been killed by communism. I spent the summer in the Library of Congress trying to track down who was killed in what government-manufactured famine or who died in what internment camp. I was horrified. Helen Levitt got caught up in the communist movement at the same age I got caught up in the anti-communist movement, and for the same reason. Because 18 is the age that we look for a cause bigger than ourselves. It's funny. I haven't thought about that time in my life for years. Except when I listened to Helen Levitt, and it all came rushing back. The brightest and the most beautiful were leading the uh, young radicals. I mean, they were the most dazzling figures on campus. They were the most brilliant professors, no question about it. The only courses that I remember were taught by Marxist professors. I asked you at the beginning to judge her. So next, let's judge her. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. Imagine you're part of a typical American family in the 17 or 1800s. After a long winter, you'd find the inside of your home covered in a thick layer of soot. Your kerosene lamps in your coal or wood heating system would have rendered your home in desperate need of a vigorous cleaning. And thus began the annual ritual of spring cleaning, which also included the very important job of changing out your smelly straw mattress. And while your current mattress most likely isn't made of straw, there's still a good chance it needs replacing. You deserve a Sattva luxury mattress. Sattvas are meticulously handcrafted and include all the luxury features you'd expect from a high-end mattress. But because they're sold online... They cost a fraction of the price of retail. What's more, Sattva will set up your mattress in the room of your choice and take your old one at no extra charge. After all, you've got enough work ahead of you with all that spring cleaning to do. And now, save $200 on $1,000 or more at sattva.com slash gladwell. That's S-A-A-T-V-A dot com slash gladwell. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious. But the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history 
who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism, and we fold. But the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to The Tipping Point, and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off. But also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. The leader of the Soviet Union from the late 1920s to 1953 was Joseph Stalin. He embarked on an aggressive course of nationalization. He collectivized agriculture. Millions of peasants were forced off their land. In the early 30s, Agricultural areas like Ukraine were devastated by famine, caused in large part by Stalin's policies. Five to seven million people died. He established the Gulag, a network of prison camps through which 18 million people were held at one time or another. In the years that the Young Communist League was serving sandwiches in New York City, Stalin launched something called the Great Purge. 700,000 people were murdered. In August of 1939, Stalin signed a non-aggression pact with Hitler. We have reached the serious events of the week. Von Ribbentrop leaving Berlin for Moscow ushers in a new incomprehensible chapter in German diplomacy. What has happened to the principles of Mein Kampf? Equally, what can Russia have in common with Germany to throw over the peace? The hero of the idealists back in Brooklyn had made a deal with a monster. The historian Larry Suplair interviewed many American communists from those years, and he told me their unwavering support for Stalin always bothered him. Again and again, even from people who I thought were really incredibly intelligent people, their main answer was, we thought the party leaders knew better. We thought they had more information, that they were a little more sophisticated in their reasoning, and so we went along. That, that always threw me. I mean, I'm still, to this day, don't really uh, find it convincing. When the Levitts moved to Los Angeles, they joined the Hollywood branch of the Communist Party. The way Helen Levitt talks about it, she makes it sound like a glorified social club. It wasn't. They had various branches, and they would get their orders, as it were, from from the county, usually, filters from New York. How closely was the National Party under the control of or in communication with the Soviet Union in those years? Complete. Complete control. They, the party couldn't do anything that the people in Moscow would disapprove of. And, and when they did, they were, they were rapidly brought into, into line. Meanwhile, Stalin's policies were not exactly a secret. 
the purges, the famine, the pact with Hitler, the show trials, the concentration camps. There were plenty of people in the United States appalled by what was happening in the USSR, just not the members of the Hollywood branch of the Communist Party. At one point, Larry Sapler asked Helen Levitt if she would have considered herself a Stalinist through this whole era. She said, of course. The general attitude we took in terms of any attacks against the Soviet Union was that the establishment here had so much at stake to undermine any success in the Soviet Union that you couldn't believe anything. We justified everything. The um, Nazi-Soviet pact did not bother us. We really trusted Stalin, that he knew what he was doing. Stalin died in 1953. His successor, Nikita Khrushchev, famously denounced him in 1956. After that, it was impossible to maintain the fiction that Stalin was anything except one of the 20th century's bloodiest dictators. Only then did the Communist Party in Hollywood fade away. Why did you leave the Communist Party? I guess that should be... Oh, it, it just disappeared after the, the Khrushchev letter. Whatever, the Khrushchev report. The secret, so-called secret speech. Whatever. Yeah. I mean, the party just disappeared in Hollywood. We didn't leave formally or said, say, you know, we're leaving, because there was no party. It just, overnight, it disappeared. Did you feel embarrassed? No. Having mm. supported the Soviet Union no. and now, no. now to have no. seen it? No. Keep in mind, Larry Sapler and Helen Levitt are talking in 1988 during the final chaotic years of the USSR, when many Russians felt embarrassed about having supported the Soviet Union. Not Helen Levitt. There's a famous picture taken at the Yalta Conference in 1945 where the Allies met to plan the end of the war. Churchill, FDR, and Stalin sitting in a row. As a teenager in my anti-communist phase, I was fixated on that photograph. Churchill, the greatest of all British wartime leaders, looks grumpy and indomitable. Roosevelt, who created the modern American state, is thin and drawn. He will be dead inside of a few months. Then there's Stalin on the end, in full Soviet army dress, looking straight at the camera with a trace of a smile below his thick mustache. All I could think was, what's so funny? Why is he smiling? How could the others put up with him? thought of that photograph again when I listened to Helen Levitt rhapsodize about the glories of her communist past. She looked at those three men and she cast her lot with the paranoid homicidal jackass on the end. And why? Because she mistakenly thought that the way to deal with the world's injustices was to line up behind a monster? In seven hours of talking with Larry Sapler, Helen Levitt never once comes to terms with the consequences of her beliefs. No remorse, no regrets, nothing about her heady days at Brooklyn College, except nostalgia. Young people who were on the campus who did not get involved, uh, either with the young communists or the young socialists, either weren't bright enough, because it was heady stuff. I mean, Engels and even Lenin... I mean, Marx was impossible to read, but Engels was comprehensible, but very, uh, 
Well, it was a challenge to read, but I, I, I was very impressed with Engels and Lenin. They both were extraordinary uh, minds and uh, incredible writers. Young people who didn't get involved either didn't have the intellectual um, capacity or the courage. As I listened to the interview, this is the moment that hit me, the sheer arrogance of it. But then I kept listening to the rest of her story. In 1947, the Cold War between the USSR and U.S. had just begun. A large chunk of Germany and Eastern Europe was under Soviet control. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill sounded a warning that would instantly become famous. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. The hunt for communists within the United States became an obsession, starting with Hollywood. This committee, under its mandate from the House of Representatives, has the responsibility of exposing and spotlighting subversive elements wherever they may exist. In 1947, the House Un-American Activities Committee held hearings. It is only to be expected that communists would strive desperately to gain entry to the motion picture industry, simply because the industry offers such a tremendous weapon for education and propaganda. Screenwriters and movie stars who were suspected of once being members of the Communist Party were called to testify. Those who refused went to prison. Anyone suspected of communist ties were blacklisted. It was all but impossible for them to work in show business under their own names. The Levitts saw their friends get caught up in the witch hunt, one by one. And then, one day, the witch hunt came for them. You know, things were really going along very nicely. I say it was a kind of jolly life. It was 1951. Helen had just had a baby, their second, a daughter. They had a housekeeper and a nurse. Her husband, Al, was a rising star in Hollywood. And... Um, then when the, they came to the door with the subpoena, it was kind of a cold chill because I knew it was all over. Now, was this, was this a subpoena to appear publicly or was it a subpoena? A subpoena to appear publicly in Washington. Both the Levitts were called to testify. They were asked about their communist affiliations. They were forced to take the fifth. Al Levitt had a statement prepared for his appearance that day. He read it decades later to Larry Suppler. Every man has the right to be unpopular or even to be wrong without suffering the consequence of official censure, blacklist, or jail. Most peace-loving people will find themselves unpopular with this committee. I do not, therefore, intend to enter my beliefs or my associations in a popularity contest in which the members of this committee are the judges. I shall offer no cooperation to the evil purpose of these hearings except that which the force of law compels. Extraordinary. It's a committee of Congress, and yet I was very calm, very composed. Turned to my lawyers when I needed to. But um, I have um, footage of us in the hall of the federal building minutes after we came out of the hearing room. And I'm so pleased with it. Not only do we look so young, which well, everybody, you know, is young before they get old, 
but I'm laughing. You know, we're in such good spirits. I mean, there's no sense of people who have been through an ordeal, but, uh, but people who have done something difficult and, you know, then they did it. Had you decided what you were going to do with the rest of your lives now that Al's professional career was at an end? Or had that something you'd not been thinking about too much? Well, the first thing we did was fire the servants. Did you have a sense, um, sort of a perspective that this too shall pass and that... And that no. You, no, you said this, this was... Oh, forever. 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 The blacklist, we thought, was forever at that point. Helen Levitt had her tax returns in those years in a little pile on the table. She took them out. So 1952 was the first full blacklist year, and your income that year was? $3,956. Before landing on the blacklist, they had been making as much as $20,000 a year, very good money in the early 1950s. Now they had to support their two children on a fraction of that. Al Levitt met a rich man who took pity on him and gave him a job filing. He got $722 for the year. Al also used a front, which was common practice during the blacklist years. The front pretended to be the writer, got the credit, took half the money. The blacklisted writer did all the work. They were desperate. The next idea was correcting papers from a correspondence school. That job earned $256. After the kids were asleep, we would set up two typewriters in the living room and collect papers from this correspondence school. 35 cents for the first lesson and a dollar for the last lesson, which was a full short story. That was a terrible period in our lives. They were broke. Their marriage was falling apart. Then Al's parents came to visit for two weeks. And we tried to hide from them how terrible things were. And when they left, they gave us $35 for their food, and I had to take it because if I hadn't, there wouldn't have been a, there wasn't a dime in the house because I had tried to, you know, make things seem better than they were. Helen Levitt remembered every detail of this time. Their daughter was four and developmentally disabled. She was still drinking from a bottle and waking up two or three times a night. Helen and Al were exhausted and, most of all, alone. Their son Tom was expelled from his school. Everyone around them seemed to be turning their backs. From the moment they appeared before Congress, the Levitts became pariahs. Our best friend called that night, and the ones that we had seen every Saturday night previously in Brentwood, we, you know, went so regularly, and said, don't come to the party on Friday night. That was a terrible moment. Did you lose a lot of friends? All our friends. I know you're not a bitter or angry person, but what, weren't you uh, I was outraged lonely, at all? lonely, lonely. It was so sad. We were so lonely. We were invited out maybe once or twice a year. It was Blacklist night when we were invited. Another blacklisted couple would be there, period. We were never invited to integrated affairs. We were never invited to integrated affairs. They were utterly excluded. When faced with someone whose actions and views we disapprove of, we have many options. Anger, concern, persuasion. We can chastise them or try to reform them. But what was done to the Levitts was something different. 
exclusion. Exclusion is sanction without restraint. And while we're equipped to deal with anger and conflict, we're not equipped to be cast out of the community to which we belong. It's why solitary confinement is so excruciatingly painful, or why school suspensions have been shown again and again to be the most counterproductive of all educational interventions. And yet a third of all American children will be suspended over the course of their schooling. We can't help ourselves. As I look back, that was the, the, that was the toughest thing. The loneliness was simply dreadful. My 18-year-old self would have welcomed Helen Levitt's punishment. But now, all I can think of is how carelessly and casually we impose this kind of brutal social sanction on others. Exclusion is not justice. It's cruelty. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet, but you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, Credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized 
for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I was raised not to complain. I had one of those English stiff upper lip fathers. He carried his wounds and grievances on the inside. And I'm the same way. It's very hard to tell the difference between when I'm calm and happy and when I'm teetering on the edge. Is that good? Sometimes. It keeps things calm for my kids. But there are times when we have to share our burdens and enlist the help of others in making sense of our lives. That's where therapy comes in. A good therapist is someone who can walk with you and make that load on your shoulders a little lighter. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Gladwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Gladwell. The Levitts clawed their way back into show business. Both of them wrote scripts under assumed names. They called themselves the Augusts. But they never had the kind of career as screenwriters they once imagined for themselves, using the big screen to tackle serious issues. Al Levitt wrote for TV sitcoms. I'm sorry, Greg, but football is out. Like this Brady Bunch episode, where Greg, one of the many Brady kids, wants to play football and his mom worries he'll get injured. Mom, a guy can get hurt right in his own home. Like falling in a bathtub. Oh, sure, but he doesn't have two other guys in the bathtub with him trying to knock him down. (laughs) The Levitts did more than sitcoms. They became active in the Writers Guild, where Helen led a mentorship program for young black screenwriters. Because it's just grotesque that they simply are not hired to write on white shows. Almost all their employment is on shows about blacks. Does the Guild pay you to do this? No. I wouldn't dream of taking money for teaching black writers. If you're teaching white writers, would you dream of taking I don't money? Want to be, I don't want to be a teacher for money. I mean, that's just not what I do. One cause led to another. A friend of the Levitts had a heart attack. The paramedics took 40 minutes to arrive. After that, the Levitts decided that they needed to learn CPR. Because if ever we found ourselves in such a circumstance, we would want to be the people who knew. Helen was in her 60s by this point. So it was very stressful, difficult for me because I never moved a muscle in my life. And um, I didn't even know then I had, that I have had asthma all my life. And then the breathing was very difficult. The compressions were... I really went into training because I was determined that I was going to pass. There were 18 of us who took the course and only 11 passed and I squeaked through. Here in this country, thousands of TV and movie script writers walked off their jobs today. In 1981, the Writers Guild called a strike. The Levitts, old leftists that they were, had to support it. The key stumbling block is the union's demand for a share of home video profits. I looked at each other and we've got all this 
CPR skill in the guild now. If anybody has a heart attack on the picket line, boy, we better really be prepared. The two of them consulted with doctors, trained people to teach CPR, organized the group of first aid workers into teams. And I remember realizing and saying at the time that the Writers Guild picket line 81 was probably the safest place in the world to have a heart attack because at no point were you more than 60 seconds away from somebody who knew CPR. And so I'm kind of like a general, you know, deploying my forces at every picket. All my uh, students from my Black Writers Workshop wanted to work for me, so they're, I've got a core of very loyal young people. I had planned to stay home and write a screenplay, but maybe this is better. Helen Levitt got there in the end, not on the grand moral political stage that she had imagined for herself as a child. She wasn't very good at the grand and the political. She was better at smaller and more ordinary causes, giving a voice to black screenwriters or on the picket line, making sure no medical emergency was left unattended. Caring for the neediest cases. There's another Yiddish expression called Gutenashuma, which kind of means good in themselves, you know, kind of just intrinsically good people who, as you say, strive to do, strive to know what the right thing to do is and then, and then do it. And sometimes they have detours along the way. What my younger self did not understand is that there is no perfect and easy path to conscience. Sometimes it's circuitous and full of unfortunate detours. And maybe what we owe each other is faith and patience, because some of us will take longer than others to figure out where our conscience lies. Can you describe them? What do they look like? I recently called up Al and Helen's son, Tom, on Zoom. I wanted to ask him about his parents. My dad uh, looked a a little bit like me. He was slightly taller. My mother was short. She was about five foot. I have pictures of them I can show you. Would you like me to do that? Oh, yeah. Hey, uh, hang on yeah. just a moment. I'll have to go to the other room. Tom Levitt came back with two black and white photographs in wooden frames. He held them up to the camera. Here's my dad. Oh, he does look like you. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's almost nice uncanny. That's your father. <laughs> yeah. And uh, here's my mom. Oh, I see. Helen Levitt. Slender, short, wearing an elegant black dress, smiling at the camera, eyes full of intelligence and compassion and life. Born in Brooklyn, 1916. Died in Los Angeles, 1993. Can I judge Helen Lovett? I know her now and what she went through. I can't. Revisionist History is produced by Mia LaBelle, Lee Mengistu, and Jacob Smith, with Eloise Linton and Anna Naim. Our editor is Julia Barton, original scoring by Luis Guerra, mastering by Flon Williams, and engineering by Martine Gonzalez. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines, and special thanks to the Pushkin crew, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maya Koenig, Daniela Lacan, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Jason Gambrell, and of course, Jacob Weisberg. I'm Malcolm Gladwell.
If you love this show and others from Pushkin Industries, consider becoming a Pushnik. Pushnik is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushnik exclusively on Apple Podcasts subscriptions. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through their day. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, saving accounts, and more at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.